This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. We have got the workers' comp renegade, Mr. Mike McDonough, with us from Santa Barbara, California. You might know him as Pie Man's Pizza. I don't know that uh, I've seen any more appetizing and appealing-looking pizzas than what I've seen posted on your Facebook page. And then you talk me into following you on Instagram, and that's even worse over there. Every (laughs) night I go home, I eat my dinner, and then I see Pie Man posts because you're behind me, and now I want to go get pizza every night. Yeah, that's it's it's my passion and my love. It's it's a hobby. I mean, some people like to play the guitar or paint or go hiking and, or play the piano or something. I, I used to be a chef. And so one of my things I like to do is I I like to make homemade pizzas. And so I've been doing that on the weekends. Uh, It's not really a business. It's just a passion. Uh, My son has a lot of friends and we do it for friends and family and a few businesses in town. And, you know, my, my sushi bills went from $200, you know, down to like $60 because what I started, I started bringing in pizzas for the sushi chefs, and so they started reducing my bills. And my son's into tattoos, so he gets a few uh, discounts on tattoos from the local tattoo parts. We make pizzas for them, and then the local barber here, he's got three shops, and he'll call me up and say, "Hey, I need nine pizzas on Saturday." So I get up, make the dough, and deliver it, and you know, make people happy and stuff. So I really enjoy it. I love that you've set up a barter system with pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't like pizza? Seriously, it's the hey, best. You got my attention, brother. Listen, yeah. Kyle, if you haven't seen it, like the dude has like legit pizza boxes that say Pie Man's Pizza on the boxes. Like you would think. Nice. Like I started like looking around. I'm thinking I didn't know McDonough owned a pizza joint. And I'm like trying to find, <laughs> you know, where it's at and all of that stuff. And then he finally told me that it's just something that's like kind of his hobby. Yeah, when I was two years old, we don't know why, but my uh, sister is about a year and a half older than me. used to call me Pie Man. So, um, <laughs> uh, it's so random. Originally, when I started uh, the pizza, I came out with Mike's Attitude Pizza because it was an Italian attitude, a, you know, a, uh, a Latin attitude or, you know, uh, Indian attitude because I was making all the different flavors. And I met with a, a franchise director of franchising for Wendy's, and he was – you know, interested in maybe doing something with me, but he just said, you know, that the perception of the name, you know, people don't know if it's a skateboard attitude, a biker attitude, a surfer attitude, turn some people off. So, you know, I changed the name. And so I went with pie man's pizza because that's where my sister called me when I was a little, you know, a little kid. And so that's where I came with the name pie man's pizza. So do you just have like a brick oven set up at home or? or no, I, I, I should get those. I have double ovens in the house, just, mm-hmm. but I have bake and convection. And so the convection works really well. I can cook a, a 16 inch pizza in about uh, eight and a half minutes. And mm-hmm. so I'm able to uh, do four pizzas in a very short period of time. So what I do is if there's catering gig going on or family, this and that, I just, I'm at home and I've got four pizzas going at a time. And, uh, my son's out delivering them, but we have the pizza bags, the pizza boxes, um, and I don't charge for it. So people just tip the driver. Um, but we have over almost 400 followers, close to 400 followers here in San Clemente. And uh, we even had one of the pizza 
restaurants email my son and said to him, hey, uh, how much trouble did you you know, go through or how long did it take you to get your uh, health license, blah, blah. So basically what he was saying is that, you know, you're operating illegally. Well, I'm not operating illegally because I'm not charging for it. But here's a guy that's been established for 39 years in town and he's concerned about a guy that's not even Getting open nervous. mortar. Well, because people that are working for him were uh, following my Instagram. So they were showing him my pizzas and I don't think he liked it. Well, he probably got a $200 sushi bill and tried to figure out why they were charging him full price all of a sudden. Yeah. So my son says, dad, what should we say back to this guy? I said, you know what? We're going to say nothing. I got that guy just gave us the greatest compliment we could ever get. There you go. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. So I did not realize that you were a chef. What's the story behind that? Tell everybody how you got to kind of where you're at now. Cause I know that it's a storied past for sure. Oh yeah. So I actually started in pizza in high school and I worked for, um, uh, they had one location when I was going to high school um, as I was getting close to graduating from high school, they had opened a, uh, by actually my junior year, they opened a second location. And then my senior year, they opened a third location out in Westlake, California. And so when I graduated from high school, they opened up a commissary and they wanted me to run the commissary. So when I was 18 years old, I was uh, running a crew of about 11 guys. Uh, Knott's Berry Farm was one of our accounts. And so, uh, it was Sicilian style pizza. So we'd all get there early in the morning and we would probably make about anywhere from 15 to 1800 pizzas a day where we rolled the dough, put them in a, that is crazy. put them in a pan, put them in cold transit boxes. And then we had a refrigerated truck and we'd deliver the dough fresh to each location daily. Uh, we would deliver the, you know, so the vegetables, the cheese, everything. So they were able to have smaller locations, but also the consistency. And then Knott's Berry Farm would order about, I don't know, eight to 900 pizzas a day. And so we would drive from the San Fernando Valley all the way down to Buena Park. And we had to be in the park by seven o'clock because uh, if you missed that time, you had to walk that park to deliver your pizza. So you never wanted to be late because that's a big park to walk pizzas around. And, you know, by the time you get out, it'd be almost noon. So uh, anyways, yeah, we'd get down there. And so we'd just drop off the pizzas. We taught them how to cook them. It was just uh, pepperoni and cheese. And we taught them how to bake them in their ovens. And so they started selling pizza by the slice at Knott's Berry Farm. That was, uh, so that was a very big account. And then, uh, eventually, uh, the guys that owned it, uh, phased out, kind of, you know, shut them down. So I went to work for uh, Charlie Brown's and then I was with a company called Scotch and Sirloin and some other restaurants. And I started, uh, learning how to cook in the restaurants and then I became a sous chef, but I never went to culinary school. And, uh, I had a dream of uh, opening my own restaurant someday and, uh, but one thing I noticed about executive chefs is, uh, you know, they really didn't get along with management and every time management would change, management would want to bring their own chefs in. And so I was always dealing with different personalities. And so just out of the blue one day, a friend of mine was going to USC and he was going to USC business school and he was working for a state farm agent in downtown Los Angeles. And he calls me up and he says, Hey, would you ever think about getting the insurance business? I said, I didn't know anything about it. So what I did is I started working two to three days a week uh, part-time for a state farm agent in downtown LA. It was a very busy office because everybody that was driving into LA, it was uh, oil people and attorneys and we were in the Arco Plaza back then and so Arco Towers. So everybody at lunch would come in, these business people would come in, you know, got their autos, their home, their life and all that stuff. They bought everything from us. And I mean, we were writing 200, 300 apps a month easy. Uh, and there was only three account uh, uh, service reps in that office. So, uh, I started learning the business. I was doing very well at it. I was writing a lot of business for that agent. And uh, one day I said to him, I said, hey, I want to be like you. And he says, we need a college degree. So uh, I said, well, I have a high school diploma. So anyways, I went back to school. Uh, I was going to school at night and I was still working in the restaurants. And so eventually what I did is I phased out the restaurant during the week uh, as far as cooking. But I was a bar back and a bartender. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So that was really good cash for me. And so I worked for State Farm from Monday through Friday. Uh, and then I worked uh, as a bartender and manager uh, from Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. So I was getting a lot of tips there and so forth. And I was going to school. And eventually what I did is I uh, phased out the restaurant and went to work for uh, State Farm uh, agents full-time as I was going to school. And then I got my degree and... Um, Took me about seven years because, you know, I was doing it at night and so forth. But anyway, State Farm wouldn't hire me because I was 
unfortunately, a white male, because back in the uh, mid 80s, State Forum uh, had a lawsuit for discriminating against females and minorities. So the federal courts basically told State Farm, you need to get your agency force uh, up to 50% minority, including females. So I went to the back of the bus. So I uh, waited around, waited around, it didn't happen. So I went and uh, didn't really want to do it, but I did it. So I went to Farmers and ran my Farmers Agency with my State Farm training. And I attribute my success with farmers to my training at State Farm because State Farm really does understand sales. They understand what drives the machine. I know things have changed today, but uh, I was in farmers and farmers just, it's an adversarial relationship and it's just like you write a lot of business and for some reason they, uh, you know, turn the screws on you and they just, you know, uh, make it more difficult for you. And I was just realizing, and I had an outside appointment because back then you could, so they had first right of fusel. So I had I was I was number, one of the number one writers of Fireman's Fund in um, custom homes in Santa Barbara, uh, in California, and uh, as a farmers agent. And so, anyways, eventually I phased out farmers and and became an independent. And then eventually I transitioned into uh, commercial lines. And then it's just like bop here, bop there. Everybody's got Travelers. Everybody's got Hartford. Everybody's got CNA. You know what's the difference? You know you're within five hundred dollars of each other. And it wasn't really value adds back then. So now we've changed and and um, we've evolved into different things through the insurance business and uh, throughout the uh, uh, the industry. And so I said, you know, I got to figure out some way that I can di- really differentiate myself. And one day I was working on a, a work comp claim and the examiner, claims examiner started, you know, talking to me and explaining some things to me. And it's like something, something doesn't add up here. And then I started talking to different defense attorneys handling claims. And I was having supervisors. I started going to webinars and seminars and all these things. And I realized that you can really make an impact in an employer's life by controlling workers' comp. And I realized that it got me out of the sales situation where I was talking about price, that I was more making more of an impact in adding value, you know, value-add services and so forth. So um, that's where I've become, you know, um, uh, I've spent more time in workers' comp and workers' comp has led me to write all the other lines. And so I go in with the the workers' comp. Uh, They see what a great job that we do. Then they say, hey, Mike, can you handle the rest? They give me the GL and the excess and the auto and so forth, benefits. And then if they uh, have personal lines needs, we can help them as well. We don't really write personal lines. We do it more as an accommodation. But, uh, yeah, we spend most of our time in workers' comp, uh, primarily managing injuries and claims management and loss control. And it's worked really well for us. And uh, so a lot of my clients realized how the system is broke. And they're just like, Mike, there has to be a revolt. And so I was working with some uh, writers one day. And I said, you know, and they said, you're, you're kind of like a renegade. And so they came up with the name workers' comp renegade. And so that's the new thing right now. So it's really an advocacy for employers and employees. So. That's, that's my story. I'm noticing a common theme from Mike's attitude pizza to workers comp renegade. Uh, <clears throat> you're a rebel, sir. Yeah. I, some people see me as that. And I, I, I you know, a rebel, I get, a, I don't know. Does that, it says, does passion fit into rebel? Because it's just, I'm just, when I do things, it's, I'm, I'm passionate about it or I don't do it. I think that's the best advice any of us could get, man. Yeah. If you're not passionate, don't do it. And you'll go find something you're passionate about, you know? And I'm passionate, you know, every day about, you know, workers' comp. Well, I think it's interesting. So, I mean, I was going to ask you where the renegade name came from. And, well, so that you got that from somebody that you were working with that just basically said, hey, you're kind of like a renegade going against the grain, beating up the system, making sure that the employers are having have advocates for them. Because as you, as you know, you know, the workers' comp system is mostly skewed toward the injured worker in most cases. And it's very rare that the employer has an advocate. What do they typically do, Mike? They wait, they wait on the uh, council that's assigned to them by the carrier to represent them and have their best interests in mind. And how does that typically work out? Yeah. And, and, and you're right, David. And, and just to go back to the name real quick is that uh, I was having a marketing firm helping me um, basically describe what I do. And so when he said, tell me a little bit about your business, and when I told him, he's like, oh, my God, I've never heard of this type of concept. I've never heard of anybody 
So that's when he came up and said, you know, you're more like a renegade. And that's where we came up with workers comp renegade. And, but yeah, you're right. In workers comp, um, everybody, every employer needs workers comp. And so it's, it was originally set up for, you know, if they were injured to pay their medical bills and if there's any lost wages to cover their lost wages. Unfortunately, over the years, it just a lot of vendors and participants in the system have learned to make money from the work comp system. And so I can't speak for, uh, you know, your situation in Florida uh, because your, your rates are fixed. But here in California, you know, employers can shop for uh, lowest price. Uh, you can get uh, safety and loss control credits and, and all those types of things. But if an employer has a work injury and does not know uh, the processes and they rely solely on reporting it to the 800 number and turning it over to the carrier, that is one of the worst things that could ever happen to an employer because now the insurance company has total control of that claim. And when it goes to through the system and is assigned a claims examiner, you don't know if that claims examiner has two months in the industry or 20 years in the industry. Uh, you don't know what their passions are. You don't know uh, what their uh, workload is. So some carriers, you know, uh, their claims examiners could be handling up to 250 files. Um, some companies cut it off at 160. It just really depends. So you can imagine sitting, coming into your office every day and you get 250 files. Some of them are litigated. you got attorneys. You know, you're going back and forth. You're setting up depositions. You've got medical claims. You've got indemnity claims. I mean, there's a whole, you know, you got utilization review. There's so many moving parts that the claims exam examiners, to give them a break, I mean, they're, they're overwhelmed. And so, um, you know, they, they make mistakes. Well, we all make mistakes. But the bottom line is, is that you need to have accountability. And that's really what we do is you have to oversee the process. And so if I'm your CPA, for example, David, and you're looking to save money on taxes and so forth, I'm the one that should be advising you on how to do that, right? And so, and if you're an attorney and I'm having tax issues or I have, uh, you know, real estate issues or whatever, you know, you're to help me, you know, uh, understand the real estate and tax laws and so forth to better help me and so forth. Well, we do the same thing in workers' comp. So we, we are actually a strategic partner and we get involved with the employer and they basically stand to the sidelines. They're involved, but we're doing all the work, keeping them involved, and we don't really involve them until there's a decision that needs to be made when it comes time to settlement. Um, sometimes we have to have a discussion about subbing out a claims examiner because this one's not getting the job done. Sometimes we have to talk about uh, subbing out a defense attorney. Um, you know, there's just all types of uh, situations that employers get into with injured workers. And then, of course, you have the post-termination claims. In California, we have what they call accumulative trauma, where they're able to go back years. So you have a specific injury where they hurt their arm, they strained it, but yet the attorney that they hire goes back and says, well, you've been working for this company for 10 years, and we feel that this injury is contributing, you know, this has contributed over 10, 10 years to this injury. So you have a CT, what they call cumulative trauma, and a specific. So that you know, basically doubles the uh, employer's exposure, increases the applicant attorney's, uh, you know, uh, settlement to them and their benefit and so forth. But um, we are really here to help the employer primarily set up a proactive program, work with them throughout the claims process. And the whole goal, uh, David, is really to help that injured worker get through the process where they're not frustrated. They uh, are not fearful of losing their job for reporting an injury so that they don't need to go and hire an attorney. So that's pretty much what we do on a daily basis. What do you think the biggest obstacle is you face? Because, I mean, look, I get what you do. Kyle gets what you do because we do the same thing for a living to a certain degree. What's the biggest obstacle you face when you're going out and trying to engage with an employer that's got an issue and has asked you to come in and talk to them? Uh, the biggest obstacle is, is getting their buy-in uh, to understand that the, they have to be involved uh, primarily there has to be a change in culture. So if I look at the loss runs and I see four open litigated claims indemnity, um, I, I know right away there's a culture issue. So one thing we start with is we want to understand what are your hiring practices? Uh, we want to understand, you know, um, what their threshold is for 
when they will release or terminate an employee because we'll see many times that these employees are repeat. They'll have two or three claims in the last you know, three to four years. And when you talk to the employees, oh, I should have got rid of her or him or whatever. But, you know, they, they are really a good worker. Yeah, they have a bad attitude, but, you know, they get the work done. And so it's, it's just they don't want to let go because they know it's harder to go out and find somebody new. And so the pain level just isn't great enough. But when you sit down and explain to them that by keeping those people around is what's costing them, it's what's causing their mod to be 80 or 90 points higher every year and consistently for seven, eight years, and that they're paying 50, 60, 70, $100,000 more in workers' comp, by keeping those people around, they start paying attention to it. And we don't really go in there and ask them to fire anybody, but we just let them know that you have a culture issue here. So we need to change the culture and your hiring practices. Two, two things, man. Number one, you know, one of the things that I've looked at, and this actually came up uh, on the call that you and I were on together yesterday, but people ask, how do you, how do you advise that people get rid of these, these employees that are problem people? The first thing I want to do is make sure they've got EPLI <laughs> because if they've got a culture issue, they're going to end up getting sued for something. I mean, it's just, that's the way that it's going to go down. Number one. Number two, the, the other point that I wanted to make is, I think that a lot of employers, it, it, to me, when you're dealing with somebody who's on guaranteed uh, cost workers comp, it's like the old story about the frog that was put in the pot of water. And every so often, it just kept getting turned up and turned up and turned up until the water was boiling. And the frog didn't realize it was in boiling water because until it was too late. I think guaranteed cost breeds that behavior in some of these employers, too, because the insurance company is the ones that's paying for the claims. Yeah, the mod goes up, but you and I both know that the average agent out there is not going to walk in and talk to them about their mod. They can't, number one, they're not incented to other than they get to keep the account because they make more money the worse the mod is. That's one of the biggest flaws that there is in the insurance world. You perform poorly and I make more money, You right? I mean, that's one of my biggest gripes that I have. But the second piece of it is until that mod hits and the way that the mod's calculated, having those, having that one year held back, by the time your mod catches up with where your losses have been, you're stuck with it for three years. You're stuck with the bad year, and you've probably got another one coming behind that. And if you're lucky, you might be able to clean up the third one that's going to be on there before the worst one falls off. But I, I think that, you know, I, I really wish that more agents and, and agencies and even clients would look at loss-sensitive plans that shift some of the onus of responsibility onto the employer to pay some of that money out because I think you'd get a lot better buy-in than you do when they're on guaranteed cost. I couldn't agree more, 150%. Um, getting back to the situation, I'll address all the questions. Um, getting back to, we don't really go in there and ask them to start firing these people. But what we find out, David, is that it's like, okay, so-and-so is doing this. When's the last time that you wrote them up? So they, a lot of employers don't like conflict, you know, and they don't want to be confronted. And so they steer away from it. It's just, it's like out of sight, out of mind. And so what we do is we connect them with an HR specialist who also explains to them that there's ways that you can run your company. Okay. And you can run it, uh, uh, on an even keel where it's, uh, it's a balanced system you're treating everybody fairly. However, if they are working outside the realm of the company, they're not following company policies and procedures, you must write them up. And yes, you're right, uh, EPLI and labor attorney. We, if anybody ever wants to terminate, especially doing a work comp claim, we always advise against it. But if they want to, we always have them check with their labor attorney because you can still fire somebody during a worker's comp claim uh, if it's for, you know, uh, for cause and so forth it has nothing to do with the injury as long as it's, you know, you know, uh, retaliating because of the injury. So then what happens is, is the employer, when they start documenting, then the employee understands, because if you see a good employee working and the bad employees is not being reprimanded and not being written up, that sends a message across the company. And so that's what we're talking about as far as the culture. So we want them to start, you know, writing people up and start documenting and so forth. And when they do that, they see a big difference in the company. And some people, they don't want to be written up, whatever. You know, some people will phase out. But sometimes they end up terminating some people. So, um, but as far as the, uh, 
uh, you know, getting more involved in the claims and so forth. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more, David, because um, if the employer has skin in the game, uh, like a $50,000 deductible, they can control that cost and they see the end result of saving the money. Yeah, they, there's total uh, buy-in. And as you know, I uh, specialize in self-insured programs. So um, that's very effective and it's not for everybody. It's just like the stock market. You know, some people want, you know, to stay in mutual funds and they want, you know, guaranteed results and so forth. And then you have others that want, you know, risk takers and want to go into the high risk stocks and so forth because they're willing to take that risk and they understand the risk tolerance. Same thing in workers' comp. There are employers that will take a deductible. There are employers that will look at a self-insured program. Because if you look at, at any of the major companies that are self-insured, David, Costco, General Motors, uh, any of the oil companies, why are they self-insured? Because it works and they have total leverage and control over the money. They're making all the decisions versus a guaranteed base where the employer, you're right, it's a guaranteed system. The employer, they pay the, the money to the carrier, but now the carrier has kind of like a, um, uh, what, what do you want to call it? The, um, uh, I can't think of the term right now. Um, but anyways, you're given the, all the authority over to the insurance company and they're making all the decisions. So when they hire a defense attorney, you have no say in that. When they hire a claims examiner, you, you don't get to vet that person. Where when you're self-insured, you're involved in the whole claims process and you're hiring a TPA that's in alignment with your company and so forth. And you set up a contract that works, you know, in the best interest of you, uh, both you and your uh, third party administrator. So on a guaranteed basis, yeah. And then what happens is uh, not only is it a guaranteed basis, but being tied to the NCCI or the WCRB here in California, that information through the unit stat is all sent to the bureau who comes back and formulates a mod. And not, now we're surcharging your premium. So when you have reserves that are set up and then the insurance companies are paying less taxes and they get to surcharge your premiums, uh, where's their incentive to close claims? They don't have an incentive. It, workers' comp claims are actually a profit center. And so that's once you start opening the employer's eyes to this, they start realizing, hey, this is a controllable expense, but it takes a lot of my involvement in my team and we all work together. They start seeing the difference. They, they, you know, they're sold on it 100%. You know, it's interesting because um, I've often wondered how anybody could make the case that it was a financial incentive for a carrier to close claims out when they have heavy reserves that are giving them an offset to their tax liability. And I've often seen that at the end of quarters, reserves go up. Yep. Right about the time financial reporting needs to happen. That's right. That's right. One of the times, you know, I can tell you, you know, we're not, I'm not a huge advocate of going in heavy handed and terminating people, but I can tell you there are certain times where that's been what's changed everything, right? So I've got a pretty good sized account that I work with that had a mod that was a 2.23. Um, they allegedly had a return to work program and I use the word allegedly as rigidly as possible because all they had was what was on paper and they weren't executing it at all. And basically people were milking the system. Right. And so even though, so, so we had to push, right. We were pushing to get the program in place, starting with, you need to go have a relationship with the clinic that you're going to send these people to so that they understand you're a light duty employer. You want to get these people back. You want to keep them healthy and you want to be in the loop as far as what the diagnosis is and all of the other stuff going forward. Then you, you have the release and all the things, the paperwork, the doctor's going to fill out and bring back to them. And if they're released for light duty, you have the offer letter that you make the employee. Well, they started executing this. And what they found out was that the employee was pushing the envelope, right? They were given a schedule. They were told to contact their supervisor if there were any issues. If they had doctor's appointments, it was incumbent upon them to communicate that to the leadership because it's not the supervisor's job to know when your doctor's appointments are, when you're going to have a scheduling conflict. And what we found out was that these employees would come back and wait until the off day of the human resources person. And they would say, well, I can't come in, but I'll be back Monday. And they were wanting a long weekend. And what happened is, they called me and said, we're having problems because they're, they're gaming the system. I said, fire them, fire them. You need to fire one person and make an example out of them. And then I can assure you, everybody else is going to realize you're as serious about light duty as what you say you are. 
but you have every grounds at this point to let this person go. They have completely violated every ounce of company policy surrounding return to work. And there's no reason that they're not back yet other than they wanted a long weekend. So go ahead and let them go. And they did. And I swear that we never had another issue after that. Sometimes you have to make an example out of somebody when you're going to drive change, especially if it's rampant, right? Because I think that the workforce that you deal with is a very similar demographic to the workforce that we have in Florida from a, uh, from the makeup of the population and the types of work that's out there, whether it be hospitality or service, service trades, landscaping, all of that stuff. California is bigger and you've got more people, but I think if I looked at the average workers comp account that's in trouble and I took what their census of employees looked like and I overlaid that on top of an account in California going through the same thing, I bet it's pretty close. Uh, probably you're right. So you get heavy, heavy, heavy involved. I mean, in like at a crazy level once the claim happens. And from my perspective, in, in knowing how middle market and, and commercial clients think that's pretty difficult to articulate to somebody on the front end of a deal. Like that's something they have to experience, right? Like they, they need to know, like they need to have had something that was so heinous happen that they don't have a choice, but to talk to you and hear what you have to say, or you have to convince them that what you do really does make a difference when they haven't felt pain yet. How do you overcome that obstacle? Well, when it's face to face, it becomes a lot easier. Um, it's, it's very difficult to articulate over the phone. And a lot of times, and, 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 and they're right. You know, they'll say, hey, we've had our broker for 15 years. He or she is great. You know, they're working hard. You know, they're, and they'll even tell me, and he or she's doing the same things that you're offering us. And I say, okay. So, but when I'm face to face, before I get there, I just tell them, hey, you know, um, that, you know, we're going to spend about 15 or 20 minutes just to get an understanding of, of, of where your pain's at. So when I get there, I say, can you please pull out your loss runs? They'll pull those out. I'll say, let me see your return to work program. They don't have one. Let me see your injury and illness prevention program. They don't have that up to date. So I go through five or six things and they're sitting right there. And that's kind of like my mental checklist, but they're sitting there writing notes. And then I'll say, look, you know, hey, you don't have this, this, and this. And then these claims here, were you aware that this one is indemnity? Why was this indemnity? Do you have a return to work program? Do you realize you could, all these other things. And it's like, they'll sit there and say, you know what? Nobody's ever told us these things. I mean, isn't that crazy, though? That's low-hanging fruit, man. How many times do you go in and you point out that a claim has low dollars of indemnity on it and the employer actually understood what that was or knew knew what the deal was? Very few. Yeah, almost never. Right. It's the same thing if you look at uh, property and casualty, the trucking firm that has, you know, $500 deductibles on collision, they're reporting everything. (laughs) Versus having to fight, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's the same thing in workers' comp. And so it's like... I'll see like nine claims. I'll, I'll tell them, do you realize seven of these? Look at this one was $265. This one was $381. These didn't need, need to be reported. Listen, I was doing a mod master for Cast, Jason Cast this morning, um, right as soon as I got to the office. And I'm keying these losses in for this account. And I'm thinking to myself, I've never even seen a $12 medical only claim before. Like, why was that even reported? It was $12 and 50 some cents. And, you know, I don't think that people understand that it's not just the indemnity portion of the claim that drives the mod. It's got a frequency component to it as well. Yes, it does. Yeah. You know, Uh, I mean, we see it all the time. Kyle, you know, Kyle understands mod master. He uses it. I don't, I don't, do it for him. He, he goes out and finds these accounts and he runs them. And I know he's seen a lot of the same things that we're talking about. Right. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think some of it too, with when you get the people filing those small claims is they just might not know that they don't have to like, I mean, they could be trying to stay, you know, stay out of trouble in hot water, just thinking that they've, because the person got injured at work, they've got to file it regardless. And just not even know, it goes back to what you were saying with not having any type of guidance on, on anything. And, you know, the people that we're talking to just never been explained to them. Well, you know, the thing that I was explaining to Jason when we were doing his thing this morning is in, inside of Modmaster, there's a deductible analyzer and you can set it, you can do 5,000, 500, 1,000, 2,500, 5,000, and you can take that account and it will tell you 
what the ultimate losses would have been if you had a deductible of that amount. And then you can take and compare what it would look like for your out-of-pocket expenses and deductible versus how many mod points you would have saved had you had the deductible. And in most cases, now in Florida, it doesn't matter, but he's in Illinois. And I know for a fact in Illinois that if you have a deductible on your comp policy, you get a credit for the deductible, a scheduled deductible credit as well. So now it's not even just about the fact you're bringing your mod down, but you're also going to be able to get a credit against your premium for taking that deductible to offset some of the exposure. So it becomes basic math. But people who do what we do don't even do that. Like they, they don't even go take the most basic illustrations and explain that to a business owner. And I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't know if it's because they think that employers should automatically know this stuff. Like there's no, there's no workers comp school you have to go through before you can open a business. Like, I mean, they just, they don't know. They learn through experience, no different than anybody else. And I mean, who's out there educating them, but you've done something unique in terms of how you're set up. When a claim happens, you know, you don't, you don't have them calling the 1-800 number to the carrier. No, they call my, uh, my triage. And so every one of my clients, when I write them as a new client, we set them up on our nurse triage. And through that nurse triage, we set up their profile, which includes all the contact people, which is the employer, myself, my claims manager, and anybody else that the employer wants. So when an injury happens, they're on the toll-free line. And there's an occupational nurse taking that uh, injury. Once the report is complete, an email goes out to myself, the employer, and anybody else that's notified on there. And um, it basically tells you what the diagnosis is or uh, what they feel it is or whether the employee was sent to the urgent care or it's self-care or whatever the situation is. But they're also helping the employer because the triage nurse is completing the DWC-1, which is the first report of injury. They're filling out the 5020, which is the employer's first report, and they're filling out the OSHA 300A. So that's faxed over to the employee, uh, employer, and then the forms are signed. So it's a seamless thing. But the other thing is, too, is in the profile, David, is we set up the MPN provider. So for that particular employer, we've already set up and identified the hospital and urgent care is within that five-mile radius of the employer. And so there's no guesswork. And so the triage nurse is not sending them to a facility that's not authorized in the MPN, which we know that first report or first treatment of any injury, you can go anywhere you want, and then you have to get back in the MPN and continue your treatments. But we alleviate all that, and so we uh, set it up so where that it's just a seamless system. And the reason why we have it set up through the triage is because 60% of the time, there's nothing there, and it's self-care. And so if it's self-care, there's no report to the uh, carrier. And so if you don't have triage and the injured worker reports it to the employer and they're calling an insurance carrier, they're reporting every little thing. These are these little two, three hundred you know, dollar things that they send them down to the urgent care. It didn't need to go. Sometimes they send them to the ER and it's a five thousand dollar medical bill. And so we're, we're doing two things. One, we're keeping the information from the bureau and then we're not keeping information that they shouldn't have. It's just that this is not part of uh, a worker's comp claim because there was no treatment, so it doesn't need to be reported. It's also saving the employer money because if there's a $5,000 bill to an employee that went to the ER and now they've got a medical-only claim of $5,000, uh, when in actuality it never even need to be reported, that's a really uh, a huge financial disadvantage to the employer having that claim reported. So our triage keeps a lot of that. So it's, it's like a barrier. It's, 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 so it's a, it, it allows us to talk to the employer and my claims manager where we review the claim and then we decide whether it's reportable or not reportable. And we get the work status report. We look at the restrictions. Obviously, then we report it. And then once we see the restrictions, the employer says they can accommodate. So when they report it, they're reporting it as a medical only, no lost time. And so the carrier doesn't set up an indemnity reserve because we're telling them up front there's no lost time. So when you're calling it in, and you're telling the carrier we have an injury, blah, blah, blah. They're setting up both ends, which is a medical and an indemnity just in case. And so now the loss runs have those two on there. And if nobody ever fixes that, that information goes right to the carrier. So now they're reporting indemnity when there is no indemnity. There's no lost time, which is ultimately affecting the employer. So here's my question. When you go in and you put the triage in place, what kind of an impact do you see immediately on the frequency of claims that actually make it through to getting 
on the loss runs at that point. Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question clearly as far as the frequency. So you, you put the triage in place. Correct. When I've, done, when I've done this with accounts in the past, a lot of the time these people are reporting everything. Stuff that maybe you could take a couple of Advil, lift your, prop your ankle up with some ice, take the rest of the day off, we'll pay you for the rest of the day, whatever, instead of sending them to urgent care to have them tell them the same thing. Right. So my question is, when you have how much of this triage filters out situations that could easily be handled with first aid that don't really require an urgent care visit versus stuff that actually makes it through to getting on the loss runs is claims that get reported to the carrier because they do need to seek treatment. Because I got to believe, based on the mods of a lot of the places you're calling on are similar to me, that you're going to make a pretty big impact just by putting that triage in. Correct. So 60% don't, doesn't get reported to the carrier. I hope everybody heard that. Like six, you, you reduce claims by 60% roughly. That's, that's the average. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, here's the other thing too, David, is the phone calls recorded. It starts the data. It releases the stress of the employee because they're concerned. So when they're talking to an occupational nurse, it reduces the stress level our litigation rate is below 15% because of the triage because we have a system that starts right away versus sending them to a clinic they've never been to here. They're just sitting in the manager's office or the owner's office at the, at the construction site or wherever the trailer or the restaurant or the manufacturing plant. And the employer's right there with them. They turn the phone over and now the nurse is talking to the injured worker and taking the report. And, and, and it's just, it helps identify the injury. And then also too, if they do have to do a follow-up, that's not, it's not a problem. Then we'll send them to the clinic, but you're right. A lot of times they send them right down to the clinic. They incur medical costs unnecessarily. And then the employer doesn't want to pay the bill, which fortunately for me, I have a bill review team. So if it is not a first aid and it doesn't need to be reported and they did go to a medical clinic, we have them send the bills to me. We uh, submit it to my bill review who reduces the bill by the work comp fee schedule. And then my employer will pay that bill. So for example, I got a bill from UCLA medical center. It was like $5,300 and um, the employer ended up paying $279 of that based upon the work comp fee schedule. Cause ERs, well, they don't bill on work comp. They just bill on regular. And so when it goes to the, when it's a work comp injury, it has to go by the fee schedule. And so the, the amount that's uh, owed to the hospital is reduced dramatically. And so that's another way of saving employers money as well. I would imagine then that the communication aspect of all of this with the injured worker is extremely important. That's correct. And if they don't speak uh, English, uh, my team is bilingual and we will get one of them on the phone and see, there's a lot of undocumented workers here in California. I'm sure in most of the States, but they're mm. fearful. They're going to lose their job. They're fearful. You know, mm. they have a family to support. They, they fear they're going to lose money. And so they think, Hey, if I go get an attorney, that's going to help everything. And that doesn't help them. So when we get somebody on the phone that not only speaks their language, but speaks workers comp terms in their language and understands the culture, it reduces the fear level by probably 85%. Makes sense. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think that that you know, you and I both know this is true, Mike. But I've always told my my clients and prospects that most workers' comp claims are decided in the first twenty four hours exactly. in terms of how the employee is going to react. And and a lot of it, you know, a lot of it goes back to the fact that these employers are just not getting coached on how to do things. I mean, I think that what you've set up is very slick. But if I were an average agent that was going out and I was, I got a worker's comp case and I brought that into my agency and I needed to give them advice to try and fix things. One of the first things I would do is I would put the pre-injury management program in place where you've got the identified clinics that you know where you're going to send these people and all of that, because you don't have to have a, a, a triage set up to do that. Every agent out there has the ability to do that. Right. Correct. And I, it's, it's just like I, when I was talking with Cass this morning, I was explaining to him you know, inside of Modmaster, you have the ability to isolate claims by location or department and, and all of that stuff. And he's like, I, I don't understand how that would happen. I said, it happens when you write the policy. 
you explain to the underwriter that you want to have a call with the underwriter, the claims person, and the auditor, all three, before you ever bring that account on board. Because if it's a complex enough account, you don't want to question an audit. So I always bring the auditor in on the front end to make sure that they agree with the class codes that we're going to use. And if there's going to be an argument about it, it needs to happen before we're in a binding agreement with them. I bring the claims people in because I want them to understand how we would like claims set up and reported to us so that if they can take that claims information and break it down by department, there's notes in the system that prompts whoever's doing the uptake to ask which department did this happen in, which location did this happen in? Because when you're dealing with multi-location facilities, you want to be able to hold whoever is responsible for the location or whoever the department head is for the performance of their individual department. Correct. And, and that brings up a, a very good point. And what we do, and hopefully other people listening will, will learn this as well, when you are working with that client and bringing them on, you want to uh, basically set it up so that everything is placed before that injury occurs. And that includes the return to work program. So if you have a construction company, for example, that has certain aspects to it where you can't accommodate uh, work restrictions that you need to figure out what those exposures potentially could, you know, could be because they don't have a corporate office. They can't do light duty, this and that. So you want to set up either through a transitional duty or some other form of return to work program because there's multiples out there that you can sign up with and there's carriers that have them as well. They don't necessarily explain to you that they have them. But the point of that is, is that if you set it up in mind, so when that injury occurs, you're not guessing. And because if you don't know the answer, you just put them on TDD. So now they're collecting and incurring an indemnity claim. So you want to set it up to where you're blocking indemnity claims before the injuries even occur. The other thing is too, David, so including you, like your plumbing uh, contractor that you always talk about. If they have plumbers all over that certain area, we help identify the, the five you know, biggest cities or whatever that the, the employees work in. And we identify the clinics and we make sure the supervisors have those in the supervisor's vehicle. So when the injury occurs, he is not guessing where to send the employee. He knows we're in this area. This is the clinic they go to. This is part of our workers' comp. Or also the supervisors all have the triage so that they can call from the construction site. So you have access to the triage and you also have access to the medical clinics. So you're taking out the guesswork and you're removing the liability of the supervisor. And that's another thing I want to back up and say is that one of the reasons why we do the triage is we found throughout the years, David, and you'll know this, that if an injured worker comes up to their supervisor and they say, hey, you know, I hurt myself. And the supervisor says, do you want to go to the doctor? And they say, no, I'm fine. They let them get back to work, not knowing what's wrong with that injured worker. And we don't know what their underlying condition is. And we've had people, you know, pass out and certain things like that. So when the manager is saying, okay, get back to work and there's nothing signed, you're taking on the li- all the liability. So by calling the triage, at least the nurse can say he can go back to work, she can go back to work, or can't go back to work. And the supervisor is removing and transferring the risk to the triage company, which helps ultimately helps the employer. So there's no guesswork. Right. I mean, that, I mean, that all makes perfect sense. So we've talked quite a bit about, um, you know, companies that we get involved with that have mod issues and recurring mod issues that just don't get fixed because they don't have the proper guidance. Um, what about companies that are with PEO where there's no mod involved? Uh, some, uh, PEOs here in California do have a mod involved. Um, but the ones that don't, um, you, you, you two are the experts in PEOs more so than I am. But my experience, what I've seen in PEOs is that they don't ever help the mod. The mod just continues to grow. They will sell mm-hmm. you on that. Hey, we've got this claim services. We closed down 90% of our claims. We have low litigation. We've got HR, all this other stuff. When they're charging 26 to 30% over the payroll, right? And so their incentive is not to settle claims, it's to drive the mod up because the longer that mod stays high, they know they can't go into the free market and, and reduce their cost. And so it's kind of like they're, they're kind of making them dependent on them. It's, I call it the heroin effect, you know, is that they just uh, keep injecting the employer, uh, keeping them, uh, you know, uh, addicted to the drug. And, and that mod just never goes down until somebody like me comes along and then we can show them the difference. Well, and the issue is they're not fixing the root cause, right? They mean, no, they're, they're manipulating, not. They're, they don't they're want manipulating to fix the root a number. Cause. 
Right. And I mean, look, I understand PEO at a pretty good level. And I understand that there's two profit centers in PEO. And the number one profit center for a PEO is workers' compensation. Because what most people don't realize at the surface level is when you write a master comp policy for a PEO, a lot of the bigger ones are taking one a million dollar deductible per occurrence with no aggregate on it. So for all practical purposes, you're self-insured. Unless you have something that gets real south real quick in terms of a claim, you're self-insured. But if you're buying in at what you're, what they call is the book rate, which is essentially manual premium less the deductible credit based on the blend of class codes that they have in the PEO, you might be buying your codes at a quarter on the dollar. And then you can bring that person in and charge them whatever you want to charge them. And the spread between your book rate and what you charge them is where your gross profit becomes on the PEO piece. So it's a huge, huge profit center if you can find people that you can bring in that are clean and you can give them a discount off of manual from where they would be with their mod because wherever your book rate is, is you can play with that number. Or you can bring somebody in who's got some hair on him, charge them a little bit more than manual but less than what the mod is and make an even bigger spread there if you have faith that you have good loss control in the PEO. And therein lies the challenge, right? Because the average one of these companies – Eh, they're anywhere between 15 and 25 employees. And now you've got to drill down loss control, safety, all of the things that need to happen in order to fix the culture and, and the things that are going on in that company and get somebody that's a 15 to 25 employee shop to buy it. And I mean, I know, you know, Kyle can speak to this from his time in the PEO industry. Every PEO has got a black box. Every single one of them has it. And when you say black yeah. box, what, what, are you, what are you referring to? That's where they hide the money. Okay. Right. I mean, you hit it dead on the head. I mean, you know, the the workers' comp is a huge profit center for, for these PEOs. I mean, they present it like you had mentioned where they're giving them maybe a discount on, on the, you know, on the state rates um, or, you know, they're not taxing them as hard on, uh, you know, to where their mod would be. So they think it's a more attractive deal for them, you know, but then they're, if, if, if it's, if it's not there, they're making it up in the admin uh, or, or the state unemployment rate. So there's there's a, a number of different you know avenues that they can go down. They they have buckets, and as long as overall those buckets you know are profitable, they can move those things around and make it look different on an invoice to you know make it seem like they're giving them a break on the workers' comp when when really they're not. Yeah, I mean the whole thing is this: if you, it's very very easy to un, unbundle a PEO deal if you can get an invoice, right? Because mm-hmm. if you, I, I always look at it this way. I'm going to pay state unemployment regardless. So I consider that a wash. I'm going to pay federal unemployment regardless. I consider that a wash. I'm going to pay FICA and I'm going to pay Medicare. I consider those things a wash, right? Because those are all going to be paid whether I'm in the PEO or not in the PEO. By ERISA law, PEOs cannot make a profit off of a benefits plan. So take that and throw it out. They're not making money there. What does that leave you with? That leaves you with admin and workers comp, right? So a lot of these PEOs, and I don't know how all of them do it, but a lot of them will go in and they'll give you just a percentage bundled price. And it's up to you to figure that out. Well, if you plug in your federal unemployment rate and your state unemployment rate, you could back those numbers out. If you plug in FICA and Medicare, then you could back those numbers out. And then if you want, you can back, you can take what you were paying or what the manual rates are for workers comp and back those numbers out as a percentage because they're per hundred in payroll. So they operate like a percent as well. And you're left with the admin. But in Mm -hmm. most cases, you can isolate a black box, like a, a bundled PEO program. You can, you can isolate it down to nothing more than the work comp and the admin just by pulling the things out that you would be paying roughly the same amount anywhere and you're left over with those too. So if you put if you plug your comp numbers in where you were, you might find out you're paying a ridiculous amount of admin. So one of the things that I always do, if I'm going to put a PEO deal together for one of my clients, I never want the PEO's admin fee to be a percentage. I want it to be a flat dollar amount. I want you to tell me PEO how much in hard dollars are you going to charge us? And guess what? They'll do it. If you ask them 
to give oh, you yeah. a flat dollar figure as opposed to a percentage admin, they will give that to you. Most people don't know to ask for that. Here's the problem with the percent. I, I, I didn't know, and I don't get into PEOs very here's often. Here's telling you want a per employee fee. Yeah, and here's the deal. You have so let's let's say that you have a, a plumbing company and they have they run a bunch of overtime because they're having problems hiring people. The more money you pay your people, the more they're getting. You have the same number of people or bonuses or whatever else. You're paying these people more money and you're paying more money in admin because it's tied to the success of your your sales and your payroll and you're not really doing any any more work. If you tie it to a flat right. dollar amount, then that's the most equitable way to do it because you're adding more expense as you bring on employees and you're paying for exactly what they're going to have to do to do that. Now, an employer, when you put that deal in front of them, is going to get sticker shock because they don't realize that that's what it costs per employee to be into a PEO because the whole time they've been in one, it's been bundled up and hidden and nobody's unpacked it for them. And that's why when you get bad mod business, they may come in and say, oh, but your workers comp percent is going to be this. But they don't tell you about the shell game where they shuffled it over to the admin side and they're nailing them on the admin side. It's always going to be one of those two places. They can play games with the, the, the unemployment stuff to a certain degree, but the biggest swing is always going to be in either the comp or the admin. And if you know how to back that out and isolate those variables, you're going to nail them to the wall every time. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it, some of the places do the line item, you know, invoices, but it's, it's not very common. I mean, there's tons of invoices that I'll get where it's just, you have to, like you said, back out all the numbers and, you know, you're sitting there with a prospect and, you know, they think that they're getting a, a decent deal. You back everything out and it's, it's like, whoa, like you said, sticker shock. Like, man, I didn't realize that I was really getting taken to the cleaners on this. Yeah, I almost like to give them the flat option first so that they get the sticker shock and then I can show them what they're really paying right now. And then it's like, mm-hmm. holy cow. Okay, right. now it makes sense. And then you explain, like doctor's offices are notorious for this, right? You get a big medical practice, they're highly compensated. PEOs love to put doctor's offices and attorneys on a percentage admin because it's all based off of what they make and it's relatively low uh, you know, low, low risk, risk in terms of yeah. what the workers' comp is. So you go, right. you throw some doctors out there that are taking distributions at the end of the year, and they're paying. Like I've sh- I've seen over six figures they could have dedicated to a actually really good human resources professional that some salesperson went in and sold them on a, a bill of goods that they were to get all of this value added service and they're not they're just getting an inflated admin fee and that's about it. Yeah, I just I just don't see them as a, a win for the employer. I don't, I don't think it's ever going to be a win for the employer unless you have a, a PEO. And I do know I know good PEOs out there that do have good risk management programs in place. I mean, I know the risk managers and I know what they do. I mean, my predecessor agency built those risk management programs for those PEOs and with the, with the risk management department and the PEO leadership. So I don't, I don't want to make a blanket statement that every single one of them is bad because they're not. Some of them will rehabilitate, rehabilitate those people, but if they do rehab them, then they need to become more aggressive on the pricing so that they can keep them in there. Otherwise, it's just a death spiral to me. It's, it's, it's like the market of last resort before you go to the Joint Underwriters Association and get forced, right. you know, what I equivalent, you know, is equivalent to forced place coverage to me. Yep, agreed. Yeah, no, that's, I, I learned something here today. It's, it's awesome because that, that will help me because uh, I do come up against PEOs and I don't know enough about them. And you know how they're, they're not transparent with their information. Right. No, I mean, that's, so that's, that's why the whole I, thing, I need man. people like you, you do, <laughs> to explain it to me so I can ask the questions, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that's the whole thing. You just have, once you, once you've unbundled one of those invoices one time, you can do it with any PEO. You just have to look and see how it's structured. And within a matter of a minute or two, you're going to say, okay, there's your money. That's what you're really spending right here. Boom. You thought you were getting a so deal. Come- <laughs> Yeah. So how come the client can't understand that from the invoice? What What is it that they're not being told? I don't necessarily know that it's that they're not being told. If you look at the average one that goes in, Kyle, you can speak to that. I mean, I would say, you know, we mentioned doctor's offices and attorneys, right? They go right. in for convenience. They don't want to have to fool with anything, yeah. you know, then you have the ones that are distressed. 
Right. I mean, in terms of doctor's office, like your places that are going in for convenience that, you know, they, they come in and they sell them that they're going to take care of the, you know, the, the payroll, obviously they're going to, you know, maybe offer them employee benefits, some, you know, uh, retirement stuff as well. They're going to take care of the comp and, and, you know, add in an HR aspect they're like, wow, I, you know, that's what I spend all my time doing currently. And I don't have, you know, the time to dedicate, you know, to the, to the things that I need to be doing to generate revenue for the business. They're, they're caught up in doing all these other things. So that's what they sell them on. But then, you know, it's, it's not always broken down and explained that this is what you're paying for inside of that invoice. It's, you know, there's a lot of gray area and things aren't line item. Now, like I said, there are some, there are some PEOs that do a good job and they line item everything. They're like, Hey, this is what you're paying for comp. This is what your admin fee is. But a, a, a majority of them do not. And, a lot of the business that we pull out of PEOs are some of those, um, you know, th- that aren't doing that, that aren't being fully upfront and transparent with their clients. Yeah. I think the other thing too, though, is that we have built the reputation at this point that we can take an account that's maybe got some hair on it. We can fix that. Mm-hmm. We can rehabilitate it without it having to go into a PEO. And we have the relationship with our carrier partners to where we can get them to do things they may not do for other agencies because of how we've performed for them, because of where our loss ratios are. And let's face it, if I'm a carrier, I want the, I want the 2.23 mod that's working with Florida, Florida Risk Partners because I know that this is my last shot at getting the big nut on that account. I'm going to ride it all the way down at that point because we're going to get them sub one as quickly as we possibly can. So if you have that communication, and the other thing too is – you know, agents play too many stupid games. You have to be honest in your communication with your underwriters. You have to include company loss control to the extent that you're able to include them. And you can augment the services that you're going to provide by using their people so that you have their buy-in as well. Look, I don't need a company loss control person to come in and do a checklist and check off the boxes for every single thing. But if I've got an account that's got fleet safety issues and they're with Liberty Mutual, guess what? Liberty Mutual has got a really good fleet safety program. I'm going to go ahead and utilize that and that resource so that the carriers got some skin in the game too. You deal with the auto stuff right now. I'm going to go over here and work on confined space entry, manual material handling, and personal protective equipment because I got my hands full with that. Right. And I think that's that's a big deal too. Yep. So, Mike, we're getting ready to wrap up. We've been going hard for about an hour. What what other nuggets do you want to drop before we cut this thing off? Well, I just think that uh, I think brokers can really do a good job out there and really help employers, uh, you know, improve their bottom line. But you know, like your new book that just came out, you know, you're talking about you know two minutes. Uh, you know, it's just whatever you're going to do as a you know, professional and advisor to your clients is that you got to look out for their best interest. Uh, I'm just a firm believer. If you do the right thing, the money will come. Um, don't look at so much as the, the, the commission aspect. Look at, you know, what can I do for this person? It's, and so if you don't understand workers comp, um, contact people that do know workers comp that are willing to mentor you like uh, David and myself uh, and, and learn about workers' comp so you can actually do a, a good job for employers. Because I think that if you're placing workers' comp, yeah, you're their, their, their advisor and you've got all their insurance and now you've placed the workers' comp. But when that injury occurs, do you really know how to help that employer? Because if you don't, uh, you're actually doing a disservice to your client. And that's just what I've seen over and over again. Because every account that I get, the brokers are not involved. Uh, the claims are just, you know, off the charts. There's no communication. And it's just like, you know, people are placing policy. So if that could change on some level, David, it's just across the country, I think employers would have a better feeling of how workers comp. My clients actually like workers comp. They now, yeah, they see how certain things don't work, but them now being involved, them now realizing they have a voice, them seeing how the money is actually spent and distributed and so forth and how claims are handled, they have a much better feeling of it. And you know what? They like being involved. They like having that decision. And so um, from that standpoint, I would just say that if you're going to write workers' comp, do yourself and your clients a favor and learn as much as you can about it because that's the only way you're going to benefit them. 
And I would tell you that your clients like it because they have an advocate. That's it. I mean, a lot of these employers don't have a voice that's fighting on their behalf. They think that they maybe do, but there's no proof that the agent's actually doing anything. And most times they're not. Here's what I'm going to add to that. And then we're going to wrap up right now. You guys just got an hour's worth of really deep workers compensation knowledge. Some of you in sales that are just out there to sell a product probably didn't get anything. And you're probably not even still listing right now. But what I am going to tell you is that there is no magic wand. There's nothing that you can do that's going to make this easy for you to go out and do. We can share knowledge with you. We can train you. We can give you a system, but you still have to go out and do the work to execute it. And my fear is that the average agent in the country today doesn't have the balls to, to, to bite down on the mouthpiece and hit it hard to make themselves better, get the knowledge, and then go out and execute on that knowledge. And I got a rude awakening for those agents. There's a cold-blooded killer in their neighborhood getting ready to come and pick off their account, and I'm going to be the one helping them. Boom. Mic drop. Amen. Mike, I appreciate it, man. If guys want to, if, if the guys and girls want to get a hold of you, how do they do so? Because I'm sure you're going to have people wanting to reach out to you after uh, after hearing you talk uh, today. Just uh, send me an email to Mike at WorkersCompRenegade.com. Um, or if you want to talk to me, just you can call me on my cell phone, 805-680-4918. And uh, just when you identify yourself, just let me know that you're uh, – Heard about us from the uh, podcast, and I'm happy to help you any way I can. And I'll tell you, if you're walking down the streets of California and you see a black blur blow by you, it's the workers' comp renegade and his Lambo headed to take your account. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I appreciate you hey, being David, on, man. Uh, More importantly, yeah, I no, pre- uh, thank you both very much for your time this morning, and Kyle, and uh, really enjoyed this, and it was a pleasure, and hopefully that we are able to make a difference throughout the uh, broker community. Thank you so much. Listen, as much as I appreciate you being on, I appreciate your friendship even hey, more, man. Hey. And it's always good to t- always good to talk to you. And I know that uh, you know we're we're both stubborn and bullheaded and motivated enough that if anybody can change things, it's going to be started right here. So I appreciate I appreciate where your heart is, brother. Now, same here, and I look forward to connecting uh, the West Coast with the East Coast and uh, making a difference across the country. There we go. You got that right. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. 